Thanks, guys. How are you? Yeah, it is great to see you. Oh, my goodness. You guys are not with me yet. It's fantastic to see you. I am here finally. Praise God, right? I uh, feel like I have not been in Elgin for a very, very long time. It's lovely to be here. It's great to have you guys at all the other campuses join us as well. Crystal Lake, I was there last week. We had a really good time. Um, up there, great things are happening. I do want to thank you guys here in Elgin in particular because uh, in order for me to get to other campuses on Sundays, you guys have had to give. And uh, I speak from the other campuses when I say thank you very much for that sacrifice and for the willingness to engage on video like they do often. And uh, I am thrilled to be back here though. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to have a really good time together. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Verses 1 to 22 is where we're headed today. While you're turning there, I need to give you a little update on my, uh, my leg. Not because you asked, but because I feel like I want to tell you. Um, so I have a fractured tibia. I'm supposed to be wearing a boot, but I don't trust doctors anymore. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I just, I don't know, I hate the boot. <laughs> so uh, I've been doing pretty well. Um, but of course, when I walk around and I'm just standing here, people don't think that I have any kind of injury and stuff. And so my wife and I, when we went this week to, uh, we went to Costco because we're Christians. <laughs> and uh, we decided to, to hang out in Costco for a little bit. not many people at Costco on the day that we went. Uh, I was, of course, hobbled. I had two crutches, and they helped me to walk through Costco. We're going really slowly around, but uh, there's a guy who works at Costco who came up to me, and he said, uh, you need a cart. And I said, no, I don't need a cart. My wife's got a cart. He goes, no, I'm a scooter cart. And I said, I really don't need a scooter cart. <laughs> don't want a scooter cart. And he said, no, 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 you wait here. I didn't think he speak, spoke English that well. So I was like, no, no cart. And he goes, yeah, cart, cart. So he takes off and he goes. And I said, I was like, no, honey, we're not waiting here. Let's escape him, right? So I'm walking. I'm not very fast, though, so I'm walking around. We end up going to another location. Well, this guy eventually tracks us down. And it, he's got a cart with him, a little red, you know, mobility scooter cart. Um, and then you feel bad because you're like, well, I'm not, okay. I'll sit in the cart. I don't really fit. My knees are bumping up against the front of it. I can't steer it very well. I do, you know that these carts, when you put them in reverse, they alert everyone to the fact that you're in a cart? <laughs> like, beep, beep, beep. And uh, everywhere I'm going in Costco at this point, uh, everyone is staring at me and giving me stink eyes. Since some of you don't believe this might be a true story, there I am <laughs> in my cart. There I am, right near the Huggies, <laughs> just in case uh, other things happen. So I'm going around Costco in my motorized cart and people are looking at me. Of course, I don't, I don't have my boot on. I don't have anything going on. And so I finally told my wife, I didn't have my crutches in my cart at first and I was getting a lot of stink eye. Like, oh, come on, get out of that. You're just... So and then I was like, oh, put the crutches in so people will know that I'm actually injured. But it didn't really stop the stink eye. You know, people were looking at me like, oh, come on, man. Eventually we got out of the store uh, and these two young women, we had a big box we needed to put in the car, and these two young women came, they were like 110 pounds each, and they both lifted this thing off of the cart that I was sitting in, like this, and uh, they, I said, I feel like I should be helping you. No, 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 you just stay there, and they put this thing in there, because I'm, anyway, felt less like a man that day than a, long, a lot of times in my life. 
But you know, there's a, about halfway through the time that I'm in the, in the store, um, I just got sick of the stink eye. So I told my wife, listen, honey, I'm going to go over to the far aisle. You know the aisle that nobody goes on? And that you're, when you're walking down, you're like, oh, I didn't know they had that. So I'm over there on that aisle, and I'm just sitting there hiding on my phone like this. And then people would come by, and they'd look at me and evaluate whether or not, and they'd give me stink eye. And that's, that's what you do. Most of, most of us will do whatever we can to avoid, to avoid the stink eye. Like, we, we order our lives in a lot of cases to avoid the stink eye. I do think that that's the case when uh, it comes to our Christianity. Um, I, I do think that uh, one of the key reasons why Christians hide their faith in the real world is because we don't want the stink eye. It's becoming increasingly less popular for Christians to own the fact that they believe things that have historically been true about Christianity. We are embarrassed by the sexual ethic that Christianity has. We're embarrassed sometimes by the exclusivity of Jesus. We're embarrassed by, look, it's not that in the quiet we don't believe it. We do believe it. It's just in the public places we just don't want to deal with that. Just, listen, can we just do the work and not deal with that? So we tend to hide our, our, our faith in Jesus on the far aisle. When we're out in public, it's just, I just don't want to deal with all, all of that stink eye. When I lived in New Zealand, uh, they were a little further down the track when it comes to secularism than we are here in the United States. But when I lived there, one of the things that happened was when I was getting my hair cut, I had this really great conversation with this, this woman. Uh, she cut my hair, and then I came back the next time, got my hair cut. And the second time I got my hair cut, she started asking me questions about, okay, you're an American, why are you here in this little town in New Zealand? And I said, well, I am a pastor of a Christian church. And she stopped cutting and went, oh. She didn't say another word to me. That haircut, she didn't say another, like I would ask her questions the next time I got my haircut from her. It was one word answer, one word answer, one word answer, one word answer. That happened all the time. Like in, in the society at large, we have gone in the Christian church from being, hey, you're a Christian. Oh, it's kind of cool. You're kind of a moral person to, hey, I'm a Christian. Ah, uh, okay. You do you, man. To, I'm a Christian. Shame on you. The world is the way it is because of people like you. And we know it. We know it. We're facing a moment of opposition. This guy named A.B. Bruce, old theologian, he said it really well. This is a deep quote, but it's well worth thinking about. He said, hatred, or if you want to call it stink eye, stink. Hatred is very hard to bear. And the desire to escape it is one, of, is one main cause of unfaithfulness and unfruitfulness. And we hide on the side of the store. Good men, good men and women, they, they shape their conduct so as to keep out of trouble. That's something that's true about us. If you want to be a good person, you don't want to invite scorn. I don't want to get in a fight with you. Good men shape their conduct so as to keep out of trouble and through an excess of cowardly prudence, we degenerate into spiritual non-entities, become completely ineffective. It's almost like we're not Christians at all. 
This passage is the first example, Acts 4, verses 1 to 22, is the first example of opposition that comes against the Christian church in the book of Acts. Since Pentecost, since the church was formed at Pentecost, this is the first moment that they face opposition. All the way up to this point, guys, it was all like, hey, they had favor with God and men. And everyone was excited about it. They met in the temple courts every day and everybody was like, good for you. And then came opposition. Before I get started in all this and we study this passage, can I just uh, clarify something? When I'm talking about opposition or persecution, there's a lot of people who say, well, this, you're, that's not persecution. Stink eye is not persecution. Not like, not like you know, death. Amen. Okay, but... We can say that opposition or persecution, it occurs on a spectrum, and it goes from stink eye to death. And in the middle, there's the loss of your job. I don't know. There is the loss of your family. There's all sorts of things that are along that spectrum. Peter, in Second Peter, or uh, excuse me, First Peter, he talks about stink eye persecution. So it is opposition of some variety. The more you live in certain societies, the more they move along that spectrum. So we face the stink eye. We, we face the sideways glances. We face, in some cases, the dangerous loss of jobs if people actually knew what we believed and thought about the Bible and God and the world and, 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 and. So how do we handle it? That's a question. How, how do you handle this kind of opposition? How do you deal with opposition to your beliefs or, or your life? This passage is going to deal with that. I, I have four things that we must remember or do if we're to remain faithful Christian people in the midst of opposition. Four of them. Here's the first. You need to expect it. People in the West were really, really surprised when opposition comes. I don't know why. I think that we think there's a way through the minefield that we, can, that we can work so that we can get through unscathed and everyone will love us. There's a way to be a Christian that everybody will praise us. But I'm telling you, you need to expect opposition. So here we are in the book of Acts chapter 4. And as they, they is Peter and John... They healed a crippled man. A whole bunch of people came around. In fact, in a minute, you'll see that it's like thousands of people have come to gather around them to hear what Peter has to say about the healing of this very famous crippled man who sat at the gate of the temple every day for 40 years. He was known to everyone. So he gets this massive crowd, Peter does. He gives this message talking about Jesus and the need to turn to him and repent and turn away from your more former manner of life and you will be saved. I mean, he offers the gospel to them. And as they were speaking, while he's giving this presentation to this massive crowd of people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came. So this is a shorthand for the authorities have shown up. But they're not just any authorities. The captain of the temple guard, he was basically like the chief of police for the whole temple area. And the Sadducees at this point were kind of the ruling political party, the Democrats, or I don't know, 
four years ago, the Republicans, whatever. They were the ruling political party. It was their job to make sure that the temple was taken care of. Now, I gotta tell you a couple things about the Sadducees and this group. See, the group, the ruling group met in a thing called the Sanhedrin. That was like their Congress. The Sanhedrin had 71 members and they were all Jewish people from different parties, Sadducees, Essenes, Pharisees, whatever. The job of this Sanhedrin was pretty clear. The Romans did not want to get involved in doing the direct police work over their territories. And that's probably smart, right? You're probably not going to oppose, violently oppose somebody who is the same ethnic, your same ethnicity as you. But if you see a Roman soldier walking by, it just might steam you up so that you want to get fight back. So instead of the Roman soldiers populating everywhere, they hired locals to police their people, to govern their people. The Sanhedrin was the local Jewish ruling council acting on behalf of the Romans. It was run by this group called the Sadducees. Like I said, they were the kind of ruling party at the time. Now, the Sadducees had a few things that they wanted to make sure did not happen. One thing they wanted to make sure that did not happen was that a lot of crowds formed. Crowds forming leads to unrest, which leads to perhaps a riot, which leads to the Romans coming along and beating the snot at everybody. So if you want to avoid the Romans coming in and beating the snot out of all of us, don't form large groups. Six feet apart. So don't form a large group. Uh, second, don't teach anybody. Like if you come in, there's 71 people who are authorized to teach. They're part of the Sanhedrin. If you're somebody who does not hold a position in that Sanhedrin, and if you come in, into the temple and you start teaching, the job of the Sanhedrin is to protect the doctrine. So if there's somebody foreign coming in and teaching something that's different than what the Sanhedrin believes, you've got to stop them right away, okay? So no crowds, no foreign teachers, and lastly, no talk about a resurrection, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. When you die, you die, that's it. Don't give people some false hope. These are the three rules. Thou shalt not break, saith the Sadducee overlords. Captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them, and they were greatly annoyed. Hmm, I wonder, because they were teaching? the people who were in a crowd and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Three strikes, you're out. So no wonder, they're really, I mean, they're really annoyed at these guys and they arrested them. Of course they did. They, they, they arrested them, they put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But listen, but many of those who had heard the word, they believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. They only counted men in those days. So I don't know, 10, 15,000 people with kids and women. I, I don't know. Huge crowd. But you do see what's going on here, right? You have together opposition coming in the form of Peter and John being arrested in the temple. You can't talk anymore. We're going to take you into the cell. Opposition accompanied by Holy Spirit success. 
If you go forward in the book of Acts, this is how it works. Stephen, a few chapters later, he is a godly man. He is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he starts preaching a sermon to a whole bunch of the Jewish authorities and, and others. They don't like his sermon. They pick up stones, and they stone him to death. Opposition, like really bad opposition. But what happens on the heels of that is that there's a great persecution that comes upon the people and they spread out everywhere. The church stayed in Jerusalem until that moment. Guys, you're Christians today in Chicago because a persecution came upon them after Stephen. Massive opposition accompanied by Holy Spirit mission work. One of the Caesars of those days, well, he's the king, his name was Nero. Nero had to explain why it was that the city of Rome burned under his guard. There were stories about him setting the fire because people didn't like him. He probably set the fire and stood on top of the building over there and did a little dance. That's what people were saying. So he's like PR problem. So he thinks to himself, I gotta figure out a way to blame this on someone. Who is the most blamable group in my entire society, in my entire kingdom? And he thinks, ah, the Christians. Nobody likes them. So he said, it's the Christians' fault. They did it. And everybody starts believing it. So much so that Nero, in order to kind of double down on his view, which he knew was a lie, but in order to double down, he gathered up Christians, and at his parties in his garden, he would light the Christians on fire and use them as the torches. It was a fun party, right? Hmm, that's an odd smell. Disgusting. But did you know that one of the, one of the greatest movements of God in the history of the church happened during Nero's time? Opposition? Accompanied by spirits work. I mean, I, I was in Thailand, northern Thailand, teaching pastors a number of years ago. Most of the pastors came from Laos, which was just over the river. Laos is a communist country. It's against the law for you to, for you to share Christ, plant churches. So these guys from what's called the Camus people, they would come across the river and they'd get training and they'd go back. You'd shake their hands when you first met them and through an interpreter, people would explain who this person is. But one of the things I noticed after I shook about seven, eight hands is that most of the guys whose hands I shook had either one, two, or three fingers missing. Like almost all of them. And I was like, wow, that's odd. So I asked the interpreter, why, is, why are their fingers missing? And so one of the interpreter asked one of the guys, and the guy smiled. And he held his hand up, and he said, well, I, the, this one got cut off the first time I went in prison for proclaiming the gospel, and that one got cut off when I was in prison, and I didn't recant. I'm supposed to teach them. Did you know that one of the great movements of God in the world today, one of the great revivals that's going on and you don't even know about it is in Laos among the Camus people? These, these men who had their fingers chopped off are leading one of the great revivals in the world today. Aggressive opposition, Holy Spirit work, they go together. This is the way it's supposed to work. And Jesus told us this would be the case, guys. He really did. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What, do you think you're somehow going to get out of it? Jesus didn't get out of it. The apostles didn't get out of it. The Christians on whose shoulders we stand this day, they didn't get out of it, but somehow, I don't know what it is, in the Western church, we're like, no, but we're going to get out of it. We're clever, you know. If we just hide on the back aisle enough, we can gain favor with everybody and still remain faithful believers. I don't know, man, either Jesus is right or you're right, but I'm going to tell you who I'm going to side with. Jesus told us opposition would come. The history of the church said he was right. Guys, we just need to accept it and get on with it. Because your expectations will determine a lot about how you face it when it's there, right? It will determine a lot about how it is that you face that moment when it comes right in front of your face. So maybe this illustration can be helpful. Um, so imagine that we go caving. You remember caving, spelunking? Yeah, spelunking, that's a better word, right? Let's go spelunking, caving. We're gonna go in a hole in the ground and we're gonna crawl through that hole until we hope to come out another place. So we do, we go into this hole in the ground and we start going through. Now, before we go in the hole in the ground, I'm gonna tell you this is an hour long hole. It does come out somewhere else, but halfway through there is this spot where the cave narrows down. It will feel like you are at the dead end. Halfway up to your chest will be water. When that happens, you need to understand that that cave, that wall comes down, but under the water it stops. So you need to go under the water, under the wall, about 10 yards, feet, whatever, and come up the other side. And you'll be good. I tell you this before we go into the hole. Now, when you go into the hole with me, we eventually get to that point, and you're like, oh, this is what he talked about. And I said, yeah, okay, ready? You're gonna dive down and go under. You dive down, go under, you come back up the other side, and you're like, see, piece of cake. Your anxiety level, I was kind of up, but not massively up, because you knew ahead of time it was gonna happen. But compare that to if I just decided I'm going to take you caving and I'll let you know what happens when we get there. Trust me, I say, we eventually get to this point in the cave. You have no idea how long the cave is. Eventually you get to the point in the cave, you're like, well, the cave's over. Do we turn around and go back? And I say, no, no, no. We got to see the water. You got to dive under the water, go swimming that way and back up. And you're like, no, no, no. We're not doing that. And your anxiety shoots right through the ceiling. Now, it's this, look, the only difference between the first scenario and the second scenario is you expected it in the first one. Expect opposition. Guys, you're going to go through your life. You're going to go into that hole, and you're going to go through, and at some point, as a Christian believer, you will face opposition. You will. Don't freak out when it comes. When you get there, you should be thinking, oh, see, there's like a massive sign on the road pointing that I'm going the right direction. Because look, what he said, Jesus said would be here, is here. Um, Band of Brothers is one of my favorite movies ever. It's, a, it's not a movie, it's a, whatever you call it, a bingeable TV show. It's about a bunch of guys in World War II who 
fight through the Nazi occupation and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, there's a scene in Band of Brothers with this guy. They're in the middle of the night and this guy starts kind of sharing his heart with his commanding officer and says, I, I have to admit something to you that when I dropped um, behind the enemy lines, I landed away from my, my squad and instead of getting up immediately and trying to find them, I just laid there in the ditch. I was so scared. I fell asleep there, in fact, and the next morning when I woke up, I still didn't try to find them. I just laid there. In the, I just laid there. The response he got from his commanding officer was this. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. Brothers and sisters, opposition is inevitable. Bullets fly in battle. You're in the midst of a battle. Accept it. The sooner you do, the sooner we'll be able to follow Christ as we're supposed to. Number two, expect opposition. But second, in the opposition, you've got to expect the Holy Spirit to show up. You're not there all alone. Um, verse 5 of chapter 4. On the next day, now you've got to remember, think about this for a minute. It's the next day. Uh, they've been left into this prison overnight. I'm just going to guess that if you guys were left in some sort of like snotty prison, basically a hole in the ground, it was not a well-developed prison, these things. It's not like, hey, look at this lovely place. It's got a toilet in the corner. No, the whole thing is the toilet. So I'm assuming that if you get, stay there all night, and then the next morning you wake up and they pull you out of the prison, the first thing in your mind is probably like, eh, I don't really want to go back there. So I'm willing to do what's necessary in order not to go back there. So they've given him a whole night to think about it. Think about what's at stake. On the next day, there are rulers and elders and scribes. This is another say, way of saying that the, the Sanhedrin gathered together in Jerusalem. And now, listen to the dignitaries who were They were with Annas, the high priest. He was like the old high priest. He used to be the high priest, but we still call him the priest. He's the Obama of the group. And, and Caiaphas, Biden's there. And, and, and John, the next president, DeSantis, and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family, like the whole family is there. Like seriously, you're standing in the midst of the royal family. You've got the queen and Charles and Meghan. She's probably not there though, is she? Right? They didn't invite her. They're all there. Why? Because they're trying to give an indication to these guys that this is the power that you're going up against. You might be able to convince a group of low-level men, but you're not going to be able to convince this, this group. And when they had set them in the midst, the Sanhedrin met in a semicircle. It's very similar to some of the churches that we have, some of the buildings that we have. I don't know if you've ever spoken publicly. One of the things that's way easier to do is to speak to people when they're in front of you. And it's much harder when they can see your rear end because the whole time you're like, oh, there's something on there, right? You just, you just, you get nervous because the setup of the room is sort of intimidating. 
Can you imagine if everyone were lifted up above you and you were standing there in the middle and they were looking down upon you, behind you? Every, that's the idea. The whole setup is intended to intimidate. So you get all these people who are there to intimidate you. The setup is there to intimidate you. What are you going to say, Peter? Who did I just say? Peter. You guys do remember what happened last time this guy was in a situation like this, right? I mean, he wasn't in the room. Jesus was in the room, but he was out by like a, a trash can. And he was like, no, I didn't do, no, I don't know anything. So what are you going to say, Peter? They've arrayed their metaphorical army against you. And they ask, by what power or by, by what name did you do this? Who gives you the authority to come into our temple and start healing people? Teaching? Talking about resurrection? Answer me, boy! I mean, whatever. Then Peter, God bless him, then, <laughs> right? He's with us though, right? So then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, look, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has, has been healed, let it be known to all of you. Are you listening, Annas? I just want to make sure you're with us, Caiaphas. Let it be known to all of you. And in fact, let it be known to all the people of Israel. You guys want to invite anybody else here? Should I stop until you get all of your buddies in here? Maybe you should call the Caesar. Bring him in here. Herod, get him in here. All the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, he is the stone that was rejected by you, rejected by you, but the you were the builders, which has become, he's become the cornerstone. This is a great image. They used to build houses with uh, stones in those days, and the stones had to be a particular, just perfect, right? So you're going to pick out a stone, and you're going to put it on the corner, and that, the, the trueness and the excellence of that stone will determine how well the building goes. So what the image is, is you guys are the builders, and you were like, what kind of religious you know, edifice do we want to build? This stone, bleh, don't like it. This stone, bleh, don't like it. We'll pick this one instead. And Peter's like, one of those stones that you rejected was the actual cornerstone that God chose. And on it, he built this high rise. But here's what you need to know. Sanhedrin, you're not on God's side. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. You're enemies of God. Woo, boy. Come on, Peter. Where'd you get those guts from, buddy? Now in a minute, I'm gonna show you where I think he got them from, but the text itself points it out, part of it anyway. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Where do you get the power? And the Spirit filled him. Granted him a kind of boldness. You guys, you know, I hear a lot of Christians talk from time to time about how, oh, I just would love to see the Spirit's power in my life. I would love to experience the Spirit's move. I feel like my, my relationship with Jesus is a little bit dry. I just want to see the Spirit act. But I'm going to tell you that if you want to experience the Holy Spirit's power, you need to be 
in situations where you need the Holy Spirit's power. The challenge that you and I have, honestly, is that we, we, we like our cash reserves. We got insurance for our insurance. Got it sorted, God. I don't need the spirit to show up. We don't risk because we think, well, that's not prudent. It's not a prudent risk. I was driving downhill. I had this old Mazda 6, 2004 Mazda 6. The clutch went completely out. I needed to go to the, the shop, which was down a big hill from my house. At the bottom was one of the main intersections in our city, and through the intersection was the shop. I had no way to stop. I, honestly, the brakes weren't working. And like, I pfft, an emergency brake that might have worked, but the thing was somehow going to stop. Like the engine was going to work, and I was going to be hooped. But anyway, because I'm a man, and I think I can do anything, and pfft, who cares about cars? Anyway, I get in the car. My son's driving in front of me saying, Dad, I don't think this is a good idea, because if you get going and that light doesn't change, and I'm like, yeah, whatever, the light's going to change. So I get on this hill, and I'm going down, and it's red, it's red, it's red, it's red. Nah, it'll be fine. The Lord's with me. It's red, it's red, it's red, it's red. And you know what happens when you get like 200 yards from it or 100 yards from it? You're like, "Uh uh-oh. I don't know if this is going to end well. Actually, there are cars whizzing by. I'm like, I'm going to actually bash into someone. This is a death wish. I don't know what I'm doing. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. Turn it green, turn it green, turn it green, turn it green, turn it green. And you get, I get right to the edge of it. And then all of a sudden the light flashed green. And no kidding, right through the thing. And I coasted into the, into the thing. The, the, the guy who was fixing the car said, well, that was close. And I said, eh, it really wasn't, you know. Here's the thing when you don't take a risk on God. I'm not telling you to go out and go down hills without brakes, okay? But I'm telling you, here's the thing when you don't put yourself in a situation where God's gotta come through for you, you don't experience the exhilaration of seeing God come through for you. you. You want your faith to be built, be in situations where God has to come through to build your faith. But in order to make that happen, it's gonna require probably a lot more giving than you currently do. It's probably gonna require a lot more risking than you currently do. It's probably gonna require a lot more going out and speaking the name of Jesus than you and I currently do. One of my professors in seminary, he had a a lovely statement once. Uh, This guy in the class had asked him, uh, I'm just in this horrible situation. He wanted prayer because I just don't feel like I have any other options. And my professor, John Hanna, he stopped in the class and he started to smile, which is odd when a student is sharing their heart about for prayer because they're out of options, he smiled and he, he said, you know, I envy you. I love it when I'm out of options, he said. That's when God has to show up. We experience the Spirit's power for the task at hand when the task is at hand. The Red Sea parts when Moses is between the army and the sea itself. Peter walks on water when he's out of the boat. Put yourself in situations where you need to see the Spirit show up. Third one, a little bit shorter now, the 
remember, how are you gonna face opposition and keep going? You need to remember that Jesus is, is actually the only, the only way. Um, Acts 4.12, famous text, so Peter ends his little speech to them with this. Look, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's speaking this to a bunch of Jewish uh, religious leaders, and I'm going to tell you right now, if you want to avoid the ire of the Jewish religious leaders, try not, number one, to say that they're enemies of God, and second, try not to say that this Jesus is the only way that they must be saved, that they need to abandon their whole religious tradition, pile on to Jesus, basically, and go. And if they choose not to, hmm? As the other speeches in Acts say, there's going to be judgment at hand. In the rest of the book of Acts, they're going to go through the Gentile world. Let me tell you something. In the Gentile world, uh, the way it worked is that the Romans, when they'd go and they'd conquer another people group, they would take the gods of that other people group and incorporate them into all their deities. Guys, if you went into a city like Corinth or whatever in the ancient world, there'd be like 40 temples to different deities, if you were invited to someone's house, you'd see all sorts of, you know, like shrines to different gods and goddesses because you, guys, sometimes the, the rains don't come when you pray to the first three, but they come when you pray to the f- next four. You've got to keep your bases covered. Early Christians were called atheists, not because they didn't believe in a God, but because they didn't believe in all the gods. They were blamed for everything. This guy named Tertullian, one of the church fathers, who basically said, look, if, if we have a flood or if we have a famine or whatever it is, everybody cries Christians to the lions because the belief was that if you don't worship the gods, they're going to get good and mad at you. And Christians were like hiving off all the other gods except Yahweh. So when bad things happen in the society, it's the Christian's fault. In other words, if you want people to believe the gospel in the Roman world, do not tell them it's the only way. Do not tell them that. Jesus is a prophet. I don't know. He's another kind of guy. I don't know. Just don't tell them that he's the only way. But Peter says, ah, he's the only way. <laughs> Christians today even, uh, this is a challenge for, for us. There's a lot of people who say, you know what, like, if we go into the community and we just you know, pull back from some of the teachings of the scriptures, especially that the uniqueness of Christ or that he's the only way, if we pull back from that, people are gonna really, really prefer that. You know, So there's a viewpoint called universalism, which says that basically no matter what you believe, no matter you're atheist, it doesn't matter. It's, you're, you're, gonna go to, you're, you're gonna go to heaven eventually. God, you're, you're gonna stand before God and he's just gonna let you in. And all the religions have a different word for God, basically. There's another view called inclusivism. It's like, well, that's not really the case, but the people who are really good at the religions that they're in, right? So if you grow up in a Buddhist family and you're a really, really good Buddhist, you'll be invited into heaven because Jesus will honor your good Buddhism. Um, If we saw a drowning person, there are two things that that, 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 that will be present that will stop you from helping that drowning person. One of them is if you don't think they're drowning. Ah, you'll be fine. The second is if you're there with like 20 other people and you look around and you're like, well, somebody's gonna help. I don't need to. The person will drown because of those reasons. So I'm just telling you, if you, if you believe that everyone's gonna make it, that the, the, the swimmers out there aren't in grave danger, 
You won't, you won't engage in mission. You won't face opposition. You won't keep going. Or secondly, if you believe, well, you just do the best you can with whatever belief you have and Jesus will honor it. You know, any of these ways will work. If you believe that, guy's gonna drown. The only way, the only way for you to face up to the opposition, plow through it and keep going is if you believe that Jesus is the only way because they are in grave danger if you stop. The Apostle Paul, he gets beaten, dragged out of the city. They leave him there thinking he's dead. And then he gets back up and goes back into the city. What? Who does this? Well, a, a guy who thinks that the message he carries is the only message that will save the people who beat him. So remember, Jesus is the only way. And finally... Perhaps most importantly, um, remember the resurrection. Here's the last part of this. Verse 13, now when, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were, look what they were, they were uneducated, common men. They didn't go to the right schools. Aren't these Galileans? <laughs> it's the way they viewed Galileans. They're, they're not the right guys. They, they were astonished. And then they recognized that they had, they had been with Jesus. They recognized that this Peter guy was around before. In fact, Luke writes this whole section kind of as a reflection on what happened with Jesus. Same language when Jesus is there and he's in the midst of the Sanhedrin and they're asking him questions and he doesn't deny and outside the door is Peter and he is denying Christ over a burning barrel to a little girl. Weren't you with him? No. I'm sure I did. My dad, I talked to my dad and he said that you were with them. No. How dare you? I don't know that man. Rooster. This is the same Peter. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. He's the stone you rejected, but God built on it. They'd been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they're all alone, the Sanhedrin now. They, they conferred with one another saying, okay, what do we do with these guys? For, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And look, we can't deny it, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them. Let us tell them not to do it. Don't speak anymore to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, mild, uh, denying Peter given a chance to have a break and reflect upon what he's done, comes back in the room and says, well, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you're going to have to judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. What had they seen and heard, guys? What, what had they seen and heard? What happened between the denial of Jesus by Peter here around a fire and this moment where he's standing in the place that Jesus stood knowing full well that if he does not 
acquiesce. He doesn't give in to what it is that they want. He's going to end at the same cross that Jesus did. What happened in the middle? Well, we can't. We, he, he had seen and heard something. Resurrection. He'd seen the resurrection. You ask the question, why is it Peter is standing here with the boldness that he has, risking his life, a willingness to keep going regardless of what the opposition is? It's because he knew that no matter what they did, he was gonna rise from the dead. You do know that no matter what happens to you in this world, Christian, No matter how much opposition you face, no matter how much stink eye or ultimately death, you do know that you will rise from the dead. We'll kill you, they say. My God raises the dead. Recant, they say. Don't believe this anymore. We'll give you stink eye. Well, my God looks on me with eyes of joy. When you play a video game and you are like my kids, you go barreling in in every moment, right? To shoot them up and you barrel in and you start blowing everything up. And I tell my boys, why is it, you guys do that on the video game, but you don't do it. You would never do that in real life, right? If the bullets were actually flying, you'd never run in there. And they say, of course, dad, we do it because you can respawn. You do know you're going to respond, right, guys? You, you, you do know that no matter what happens in this world, in this life, there's another one. Why are we so scared then? Why are we sitting on the aisle? I don't know why. Why are we over in the corner? Why are we still sitting in the ditch? Yeah, the bullets are flying. I get it. But can they harm you? And they really harm you. The moment that you realize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real and that you, because you have shared in his sufferings, will share in his glory, the moment you realize that, it will change every single thing about you. You will go from being a cowering denier, hiding in the aisles, to a bold proclaimer, risking your life for everything Jesus has. You do know that the world would be transformed by a group of people that that happened to. It happened once. It could happen again. Know what you have. Be who you are. Let me pray. Father, for your grace, I'm thankful. Would you give us... Uh, Holy Spirit movement in our hearts and minds and souls. And would, you, would you grant us the courage that ought be ours as children of the King, the resurrected King, who has promised to keep us and, and grant us the same resurrection that is His. He is the first fruits of glory, Father. We are the ones who will follow, Father. Just press that in us, Holy Spirit, press that in us and help us to go out the doors of our church today with passion, with risk, with a willingness to do the things that very few others do.
do because they're so afraid of death. But death has no sting for us. Convince us of it, we pray in Jesus' name.